Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Narratives of American history are often centered around the idea of oppression and liberation, with groups such as ethnic minorities, women, and workers struggling with, and at least to some degree, overcoming prejudice. Perhaps because of American understandings of their country as a shining beacon of religious liberty, ideas of people facing prejudice because of their religion often recede to the background. In her book, The Nativist Movement in America, Religious Conflict in the 19th Century, published by Rutledge in 2013, Dr. Katie Ock shows through an exploration of anti-Catholic Protestant nativism, how religion could play a key role in marking a community as dangerous and leading another community to oppose it, even with violent means. Ox, in a careful exploration of three such moments, the burning of the Ursuline convent in Charleston, the Philadelphia Bible riots, and the destruction of a stone that Pope Pius IX had donated for the construction of the Washington Monument, foregrounds religion as an important cause behind these historical events while also showing how class and gender could play roles as, as well. In addition to her fascinating treatment of these issues, Ox also includes a number of primary sources, making this work not only interesting in its own right, but also ideal for inclusion in a course on American religious history. As an aside, Dr. Ox is also working on a documentary on Philadelphia Catholic history that will screen before Pope Francis's visit, and which you can see at uh, urbantrinityfilm.com. Well, I hope you enjoy the interview and have a look at Dr. Ox's book. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Katie Ox about her new book, The Nativist Movement in America, which was published by Rutledge in 2013. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm from North Jersey, where I was raised and then went to college. I went to Trenton State College. And when I was a junior in college, I just happened to be in a world religions class. I hope it's okay that I'm blending my biography and my how I got into studying religion. (laughs) That's no problem. Um, So I just happened to be in a world religions class. And... When we studied, you know, in week one, we did Hinduism and then Buddhism. And I don't even know how the chronology went in those days in world religions classes. But each week, whatever it was we were doing, I said, that's me. That's what I am. I'm sure of it. You know, and then the next week I said the same thing about whatever the next religion is. So all of a sudden I kind of started thinking, even though in that moment it was just more, I don't know, an associative thing with each different world religions, but I had never heard anything at all about them before. And so in these early years of college, I guess a little bit in the later years of high school, when I was starting to think sort of simultaneously about the world and the nation and politics and also putting that together with this you know, this question of, of having never been exposed to the religious face of others. Um, I just, you know, got the religious studies bug and I moved to Philadelphia after I graduated from college and, um, decided that I was going to go to grad school for religious studies. And I started here in Philly. I was sort of not all that prepared and I think a little bit too young for it at the time. So it was a bit of a false start, but then I realized it really, it might have been a false start, but it was really what I wanted to do. And one thing led to another via a mentor from Trenton State College that um, got me to Ann Taves at Claremont in California. And I decided to go to Claremont and study with Ann there. And um, it's just been an incredible now, I guess, rapidly approaching 20 years. And I love it. Well, how did you go, though, from, from, in a sense, world religions to focusing on America? Well, it was, it was sort of a slow progression, actually. At first, I, uh, when I started grad school at Penn, I was really interested mostly in new religious movements. So it wasn't so much 
the world religion's peace as it was realizing that I didn't know anything at all about these other religions. And especially when, you know, I was born in 70. And, you know, Edward Said talks so much about 79 and the Iranian Revolution and how these images from that time really were really prominent for the first time in kind of introducing Islam to Americans and introducing it as, you know, a very the evil other to Americans. And I think that there's probably a lot of that inside me also that I didn't realize. But, you know, from being nine and ten throughout all that hostage crisis and, you know, all those very um, big, big international events that just sort of burned onto my very young brain. And then realizing in going through world religions that, wow, these are actually beautiful faiths and they're nothing like what the impression that I have of them is. And so then it just kind of seemed like new religious movements was also, you know, this, you're presented with this real hard copy, you know, kind of entertainment tonight about, you know, sexual innuendos and stockpiling weapons, suicide pacts and, you know, that, that there's something pathological going on here with, with what, you know, we're called cults. And so it was first then that I started being really interested in and studying. And then it just kind of went from there after that to just a, a, a broader look at, including new religious, new religious movements, of course, but just a broader look at how America has been shaped by and how America shapes understandings of religions, both Christianity as often seen as a sort of indelible part of its own history, but also how that then creates these others. And uh, especially when you, you bring in the, the international scope and the international scale. Well, fascinating. And how's that? And, and it really came through actually in your book, which I will, I, I'm sorry, I'll get a little bit ahead of myself, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. How did you come then to write? Um, how did this all connect to, to your book, The Nativist Movement in America? Well, when I first started thinking about my dissertation, the first place that I went, even though, you know, curiously enough, I'm in Los Angeles, but was to Philadelphia because, I don't know, as soon as I got to Philly, I was just, I was smitten. I mean, this is just such a fascinating city to live in. And the layers of history and the layers of of a narrative about history that you sort of walk through physically every day is just profound. And so I knew I wanted to go back to Philly somehow. Um, I don't even think I knew physically at that point, but intellectually I knew I wanted to write about Philly. And so I was thinking about, you know, what were the sort of earliest moments of contact between diverse religious believers or diverse religious institutions in Philly because, you know, of course, one of the really cool things about Philly was that it was a lot more diverse than other places in certain earlier periods, like, you know, the colonial and early national period than other places were because of, because of Penn's plan. Right. And so in thinking about where's a good place to begin with this story for my dissertation, I landed on 1827, which was, the year that the American Sunday School Union, which was an evangelical organization, um, pan-evangelical organization, you know, there are people from a lot of different Protestant denominations that were a part of it, but that was the year that they applied to the Pennsylvania legislature for a charter. And so there were incredibly fascinating debates between legislators about you know, who these people were, what they were trying to do, whether or not they could be and should be given a charter based on aspects of their mission. And it just seemed like it was such a fantastic lens into the beginning of this because there were also, in addition to legislators, there were a lot of other religion, religious people as well as religious institutions that were following this debate. And some of them were supporting the charter and some of them were against the charter and writing letters to the legislators to that end and publishing op-ed pieces and all this. So it was just, it was a really great moment to begin kind of unpacking what was going on. So dissertation started there with chapter one 
And then chapter two, I used St. John the Evangelist Catholic Church, which is on 13th, um, on 13th Street in between Market and Chestnut in Philadelphia. And it was the fourth church in the city, fifth church, excuse me, in the city. And it was, it was founded by Bishop Kenrick, who becomes later really known as a, a, a stalwart for a sort of Roman Catholicism as opposed to an American Catholicism. But its founding pastor was a fellow named John Hughes. And John Hughes became famous, perhaps infamous to some, for later becoming the first, first Archbishop of New York and builder of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, but also for being a, an incredibly strong defender of Catholic presence in the public square, in, especially in New York, but more broadly. And I was always, you know, I said to myself, you know what, he was doing that in Philly. Like, he learned how to be that tough guy that he was in New York in Philly first. So I was fascinated then by his church that he was the founding pastor of. And curiously enough, there were all these ecumenical gatherings there, which sounds really strange, I think, reading back what happened in New York to Philadelphia and saying, wow, John Hughes was this person, this priest who said, sure, we would love to host an interfaith gathering in our church. We would love to be a part of that. So it just... It just absolutely fascinated me. So that was the second chapter was exploring all these interfaith contact, cooperation, encounters, etc. at St. John the Evangelist. And then, of course, after the after the you know moments of contact, cooperation, some tensions, etc. Then you know how do we get to these riots in 1844 that are you know the first large scale urban rioting in in the country after we've had these other moments where it sounds like there's some really interesting, rich conversations that are going on, not just people, you know, hurling rocks and shooting each other. So the Bible rights then became chapter three coming off of that idea of, you know, how do, how do we get to this after Penn's plan for religious tolerance and these, these moments of rich dialogue and contact and discussion, um, and so then what I did in after the book is I published the chapter on St. John the Evangelist, using it as a way of spatially thinking through these issues in, in one precise location. And I knew I wanted to also publish something on the Bible rights. I wasn't sure that it was going to be a full text, but the opportunity came up with Routledge to then use chapter three of, of the dissertation and to add primary sources to it, which was also really fun because, you know, anybody who has written a dissertation in history knows that you, you come across such a tremendous amount of, of primary sources that can never end up making it into your finished dissertation. And it, you know, they always are sort of whispering in your ear or gathering dust and saying, what are you going to do with me? Come on. So I was really happy to be able to add those into the book also and expound on on chapter chapter three of the dissertation um, a bit more. And then what happened with the other two chapters is that Routledge thought that perhaps taking expanding a little bit beyond Philadelphia geographically would help readers to understand that this wasn't just a Philadelphia situation, but actually something that affected um, it affected most places in the country. I can't think of somewhere that it didn't affect, but certainly widely varying degrees. But, um, you know, they thought perhaps take it beyond Philly, but stick with a sort of regional, regional look. So I thought that, um, that Boston and DC made, made good, made good bookends of the story. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And I thought, I felt like this, this book of yours really cohered together well uh, as I read it, I enjoyed that that kind of it felt to me that, yeah, you were able to do some kind of almost like micro history where you're really able to focus in on things in great detail, but also give us a taste that, hey, this was not uh, something that was just confined to one particular area. And of course, the, the great primary sources you include really um, reinforce that point as well. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad that that came across strongly because I do feel I do feel that's the case. I mean, I'm I'm often given to. Um, just saying, if you want to know anything about anything, just look at Philly. But 
But that's just because I'm a bit of an exceptionalist. So I do realize every once in a while we need to talk about other places. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wonder then if we could start looking in at the the first chapter of your book, because um, I'd like to hear what you mean by nativism. Ah, excellent question, isn't it? And a long pause for it's a complicated answer, right? I think perhaps the best way of explaining it to the way that I think about it anyway is that it's it's both simultaneously a sort of ideology or set of ideologies with a number of moving parts as well as more formal organizations that emerge from that. So, um, you know, Bruce Dorsey divides it between political and religious nativism. And I think that I think that that model works in both of those both of those cases. I still think that it's more than that, too. You know, it's, it's on every scale. But OK, so what are some of these components? Well, it seems that the central component that we can find in any of the given examples of nativism is an anti-immigrant xenophobic perspective on on those who are not born in America in some cases, but even beyond that, in in other cases, anyone coming to America, anyone who is not like me, considers themselves first and foremost an American, regardless of what they were before. Um, And then it begins to take in immediately, along with that, aspects of both religion and race in the ways that it shapes who is and who is not an American, who is eligible for belonging in both that kind of ideological way as well as in a formal way. So then when you take those ideologies and then in some cases create organizations, they can be either organizations that are trying to reach out to people in some sense and kind of teach them how to be, uh, you know, good American citizens with the white and Protestant components that are usually at the fore as well. Or it can be these, it can be political parties that are then formed to rally and lobby and get out the vote, like quite literally to support these ideas. Um, And so we see it just run the gamut across all of these different scales and from the individual to the family to local politics, right all the way up to national politics. And these components really intertwine with also, you know, never mind as if it's not enough to have religious and racial components and xenophobia intertwining here. But, you know, there's elements of class and occupational choice in this defining of the us and the them and who is and who is not an American. What is and what is not America and who belongs in it and where are those lines drawn. So it's a very complicated and, um, you know, I know some people use that expression, hydra-headed monster, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it, I feel like when it comes to nativism, it's really appropriate because it can surface in, in whatever kind of manifestation first, you know, with all of these other characteristics behind it. But, but it just, it does surface in this kind of, I, I, I might have said in the book cyclical, but I'm not, I, I, I don't really want to say that anymore. If I did say it then, because it's not cyclical, you know, I mean, there's definitely some patterns to it sometimes, but you never really know when it's going to surface and when that's going to become a, a thing. And so it, it's repetitive, you know, it's a constant theme because the process of, the process of figuring out what the American project is, I think, is still new enough, whether that's either really explicit or implicit. And so this nativism, the question of then what isn't and who isn't um, to be a part of it is also a continuing question. And so how did um, you mentioned there's these religion components? And I think an important thing you're arguing in your book is, is that religion is important. How did developments in Protestant Christianity in the United States help lead to nativism? In a number of ways also. You know, there's, um, I certainly don't want to say that it's an explicitly Protestant thing, the sort of Enlightenment project, because it's certainly not. And I don't want to speak monolithically about any of these 
developments, but I think something about the Enlightenment Project and this almost, I don't know, lust, it seems like, with some folks to categorize and classify and rank um, different people in, in according to whatever ranking system, and not even people, you know, to do this with everything, insects and trees and all of that. So I think that there was a component of that that is important, you know, trying trying to categorize the world and put things in their created categories. Um, and, in, you know, in our case, when talking about nativism, who, who is and who isn't an American and why? Um, and what are, what are the degrees of that? Um, I also think that the developing relationship between Protestant ways of encountering the world and using their Bible as a lens to do so is a, is a big part of this. So a kind of typological reading of what the motivations are and what the, um, where, where folks are coming from and where they're going and what they intend to find when they get there as a part of a biblical typology so that, you know, seeing oneself as, you know, new Adams on their way to a new Jerusalem and then defining that new Jerusalem or, you know, what, what is colonial America in a biblical way and in a very Protestant biblical way, which was using Protestant translations of the Bible to do so. I think that that's a huge component in it. Um, and the other huge component that is, I, I guess, sort of part of both, but but beyond them too, is this notion that, well, as as non-Catholic Christians, we are able to think without the instructions that come from the institutional church in Rome in some ways, and so that gives us. Protestants may have thought either individually or, you know, as a corporate entity in their, in their churches, this gives us the opportunity to understand what democracy means and to understand what it means to go to a new place and to found that new Jerusalem in a way that they didn't believe that Catholics could. Um, so again, it's, you know, it's multi-scalar and it's multi-layered and, it's a process, certainly, and it, you know, some, some Protestants have, you know, the degree to which they're thinking like this is, goes far beyond others, certainly. You know, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here about it, but I think the typological reading of the Bible and the understanding of themselves as able to encounter that Bible in a way that they didn't see Catholics as able to freely do are... Um, are, are the strongest components of that. And, and so that's one reason why Catholicism becomes a target of nativism? Certainly. Certainly. Um, you know, the, in, in, terms of, in terms of Christianity, there's so much of Protestantism that in, in certain moments and in certain Protestant churches is defining itself against Catholicism still. You know, we're we're really close to the Reformation when we're talking about colonial America, you know? And so there's still this polemical and ideological and rhetorical kind of encounter with Catholicism and with what, what we, to Protestant ways of thinking, what we are doing that is not like that. And, you know, when you're talking about the American context, there's barely any reason to think beyond other Christians for a long time and in most places for an incredibly long time, like until yesterday in a lot of places. In Philly, it was different. And that's why I think Philly is a unique place to think about because there was a more diverse Christianity. So there were a lot more different forms of Christianity here. Um, but also the earliest encounters with non-Christians are going to be able to happen here as well. I mean, you know, there were Jews in some other places, not very many other places or very many Jews here, but um, the encounter with Catholicism is going to come first and it's going to come, I think, to the, to the fore most dramatically in Philadelphia because of the, because of Pennsylvania experiment. Now your story um, as in the title or the subtitle is religious conflict in the 19th century 
But at the beginning of each of your chapters, you include a little vignette that tries to connect it um, and show how this matters in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think it's crucial because one of the things that struck me so strongly when I was working on the dissertation and looking at those primary sources was that if you were to cover up the word Catholic or papist or, you know, whatever other sort of slur or word that would be used in in the anti-Catholic writings, in the most virulent of them especially, it was exactly, exactly the same things that I was hearing on my radio, reading in the newspaper on a daily basis as I was writing this stuff against Muslims. I mean, it was some mornings and, and, and days going through this, it was shocking how close the language was. And so I just felt that it was really important to bring that to the fore because, you know, in teaching at St. Joe's, teaching students who, I think our student body is 88% identified Catholic. And, you know, my students, when I talk about anti-Catholicism, they, I mean, it's just blank stares. They have no idea what I mean, anti-Catholicism. Who would ever hate Catholics? Catholics are, you know, in there, a lot of them also coming from Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and now in a Catholic college, they have rarely encountered non-Catholics. So they almost assume that everyone they're going to encounter is a Catholic. And why would anyone ever hate Catholics? Catholics, to them, were the founders of America. You know, any time in their past, when they were taught about it and, and thought about it, they, they read the word Christian as just meaning Catholics. And so for them to be hearing on a daily basis so much anti-Muslim rhetoric and seeing so much anti-Muslim activity in, in the country around them. Um, I just thought it was really necessary to help them make sense of it, especially. And so they were sort of my, um, my litmus test or what I had in mind for that, because, you know, I don't think they're alone. I think there are a great many Catholics in this country who, who don't know about the extent of, of the persecution and discrimination. I mean, there's a lot of people who know the, you know, no Irish need apply and all of that stuff, but you know, that's, you still don't have to take the religious component of that as strongly as the ethnic and national, if you don't want to, but I think it's incredibly important that you do because it's there, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't until Irish Catholic immigration started that you got all of the anti-Irish stuff going on in this country. So it's, uh, it's, it would, it would be, um, it, it, it's not great history to think of it as just an anti-Irish situation, but it's an anti-Catholic situation. And so making those leaps between, you know, 200 years ago and today, I thought was really important. I remember having a similar experience where a neighbor had, had placed in our mailbox, um, a, a kind of a letter uh, that detailed their concerns about about Muslims. And, and just like you said, you could take out Muslim and put in Catholic, mm-hmm. and it read just like something from the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you're writing, uh, I mean, you're, we're talking while you're in Philadelphia, you had, you've been mentioning how important the Bible is for understanding uh, nativism and for, uh, for anti-Catholicism. So perhaps... Uh, we could skip ahead to chapter three to talk about the Philadelphia Bible riots. Okay. So I wonder, could you give us in a nutshell, what, what were the Philadelphia Bible riots? In a nutshell. (laughs) Well, I think I've already mentioned that, you know, at the end of them, we do know they were the first large scale and the biggest up to their time urban rioting that happened. Then the beginning of the story certainly goes back before 1842, but 1842 is a good place to start. That's when a Catholic school teacher was fired for not reading the King James Bible with her students. Now, why would she read the King James Bible with her students to begin with? Well, it was used in the classroom for all kinds of reasons to do all kinds of things. So it was a part of primers or a part of um, the school textbooks that would um, teach students all kinds of things, um, reading, writing, math, 
you know, history would use aspects of the King James Bible. There would be Bible reading. There would be songs that were sung. There would be, um, there would be portions of things like primers, but also other things like the literature that was disseminated by the American Sunday School Union, who I mentioned earlier, and other evangelical groups that would have been just kids' fun literature, kids' penny gazettes, that all of these things would contain not just direct passages from the King James Version of the Bible, which was not the authorized Catholic translation, but that would also be pretty strongly anti-Catholic in some instances. So they would also say, not just would they use the King James Bible and excerpts from it, but they would also say, you know, Catholics are taught that they're not allowed to read this, or the Pope in Rome acts like this, etc., etc. So it was both a sort of just general anti-Catholic stuff that was in inside of every subject, but then also explicitly the use of the Bible itself and biblical passages. And so in 1842, this Catholic teacher is fired for, for refusing to go along with that. And, you know, it was a moment in Philadelphia where all of a sudden there was a significant enough, though still not significant to any extent, Catholic population that you have a Catholic school teacher, first of all, and that you have a good handful of Catholic students in each class. Whereas before then, you, you know, the community grew really slowly. And it wasn't until after the riots, it was only in the late 1840s that was the Irish famine immigration, which is, you know, adds tens of thousands, almost 100,000 Catholics to the city of Philadelphia. We're before that still. But the numbers have all of a sudden started to go up to the point of being a recognizable minority. So she refuses to read the King James. And Catholics had at that time the Catholic Standard and Times, which was founded by John Hughes, who I mentioned earlier, the feisty John Hughes. And so after this firing, some Catholics begin to discuss this in the Catholic Standard and Times in their presses, and they're talking about it and really make her a bit of an iconic figure and look at what's happened, you know, we can't stand for this, et cetera, et cetera. So Bishop Kenrick asks the school board if, Perhaps there is an alternative here because this is not going to work. And his, not to jump ahead to talking about the documents, but he makes some really interesting arguments that sound very contemporary, in fact, because it's the kind of stuff that we're still debating. But he says a few things about why this shouldn't happen. One of them is about religious liberty and about Catholics' freedom to worship and about Catholics not being coerced to do Protestant forms of Christian worship. But he also outlines that for Catholics, any Bible reading whatsoever is considered a, an act of religious worship. And I think sometimes that gets overlooked in the debate that, you know, even some Catholics themselves that were writing in the newspaper were saying, well, what's the big deal? You know, we want our kids to be instructed in morality. And so maybe it's not our translation of the Bible, but it is the Bible. And, you know, we like that and it's a good thing, et cetera, et cetera. But the point that Kenrick was making was that any act of Bible reading whatsoever is a religious act. And Catholics were not permitted at the time to take part in any religious forms of worship with non-Catholics. So the reasons then that this becomes an issue are also really multifarious. So it's not just that now a Catholic freedom of conscience has been violated and she's been fired because of it, but the freedom of Catholic school children and many of their parents, one can assume, has been violated. Also, now getting a little bit more explicitly religious, Catholic students are being asked to violate the tenets of their religious faith because they're worshiping with non-Catholics in the classroom and they're reading an unauthorized version of the Bible. So, you know, there's a number of different problems with this. So anyway, what happens is that the school board actually comes down on Kenrick's side a lot more, which is another thing that I think is overlooked. But the problem is that they say, okay, well, Catholics can use their translation of the Bible. Or I should say, they say, Catholics can use any Bible they want, except it can't have any commentary in it. It can't have any interpretive or 
teaching footnotes or shaping to it, which immediately meant that the Douay Reims, which was the authorized Catholic version at the time, could not be used because that's exactly what it had in it was the teachings of the magisterium in the interpretation and the history of the interpretation of the Bible. So it's, you know, it, it's a victory for, for Kenrick and Catholics in one sense, and yet it's not because it's a shallow victory. It means nothing because they can't actually do anything about it. But, of course, with Philadelphia being Philadelphia at the time, although I guess it's not all that much different, the, the different sides of this debate get a hold of it. And the, the sort of popular, the popular crowd gets a hold of, of this and what's going on and takes it beyond this sort of debate between the school board and a religious organization and takes it beyond the more strictly religious debate about, you know, violation of conscience and freedom of worship and all that. And it becomes pretty radically and pretty rapidly, too, in an election year, it becomes that Catholics, as we have always suspected, don't know how to freely approach the Bible because they only have done it in a way that they have been taught and told. And what's even worse, it seems that they do not want to encounter the Bible, which is the foundation of this country, the foundation of our moral principles, the foundation of our public institutions, etc., etc., and so that was um, not a, a pretty large nutshell for the sort of lead up to what happens in 1844. But that's kind of where we're at then as we come to May of 1844. And so by that point, the, you know, as I was saying earlier about there's a kind of ideological religious nativism and then there's a more formalized religious nativism in terms of organizations and political parties. And we had a few that were in Philly at the time. And the one big one is the American Protestant Association that was found, founded by over 100 Protestant ministers. And their constitution just lays out the reasons why Catholics are not Christian, why Catholics should not be permitted to be a part of the American experiment, et cetera, et cetera. And there are also various, you might say more strictly political nativist parties, but... I have a hard time saying strictly political. Anyway, um, the American Republican Party, the Native American Party, groups like that, that um, they might not have gone by those names just yet, but they were all in their nascent years. And there were a number of different formal parties that they went by at the time, and then they're going to come to be the Native American Party and the American Republican Party. And they are active in Philadelphia also. And so some leaders of these groups decide to hold a gathering in Kensington, which at this time, in this neighborhood in Kensington especially at this time, was immigrant Catholics. And so they gathered there, and, you know, the, the first day that they gathered there was sort of like, okay, let's agree to come back next week. It was a Friday they were there. They decided to come back on Monday. It begins raining. People scatter. The, by, between the Friday and the Monday, a large number of folks had gotten the word to assemble. And one thing leads to another. The accounts are the accounts are fascinating to read, but they're incredibly complicated because the you know, the presses were largely either Protestant or Catholic. So the accounts can get very confusing about the process of how this happened. At the end of the day, however, one Protestant is killed. His name is George Schiffler. And He's killed, it's believed by the Protestant and especially more virulently nativist press that he was intentionally murdered by an Irish Catholic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not really clear if that's the case. There was a lot of scuffling and a lot of running and a lot of gunfire and a lot of, uh, you know, projectiles being tossed and things like that. Regardless of the specifics, George Schiffler is killed and is sort of instantly um, becomes a martyr for the movement. They determine that they're going to gather again the next day at Independence Square. And, you know, it's, it's certainly not the whole Liberty Bell Independence Mall, which is where that is located today. Um, the symbolic importance of it at the time was not as great, although it was a large public gathering place. So... 
this is certainly an intentional decision to gather there. Um, certain Protestant ministers had spread the word to come with arms because, you know, they said clearly we're going to need to come with arms because look at what the Catholics did yesterday. They were slaughtering us. The streets were running with blood, etc. And um, so John Perry and John Guillen, who were two Protestant ministers, Unitarian ministers, not not the Unitarian ministers that we would think of today, but 19th century Unitarians. And so they say, you know, come armed to this gathering. By the time this gathering gets together the following day, there's probably around 6,000, no less than 5,000. But, you know, again, the accounts differ. And although a number of people at the gathering are hoping to formalize another sort of organization, perhaps, or they're hoping to make formal some kind of group to fight back against the Irish Catholics in Kensington. But a lot of the people who show up are really just, um, you, you know, in this moment of, of histrionics and they're, they're here to fight and they're not even really listening to the speakers. And so they decide from there that they're going back up into, Ken, into Kensington to enact their revenge. And, so a good number of the folks of the, let's say, 6,000 who were there that day march back up into Kensington. It's about three miles. They go up 2nd Street. And when they get there, the first thing that they do is burn down the Hibernia Hose Company, which is the hose company that, it, that they believed that the shot that killed George Schiffler was fired from. And then they determine that St. Michael's Church, which is a Catholic church, had also been not just stockpiling weapons for Irish Catholics, but a place where Irish Catholics were hiding and other Catholics as well were hiding out. And they burned that to the ground. They burn the Sisters of Charity convent to the ground. They desecrate the cemetery and they burn down a significant part of the neighborhood on that night. Um, by the time the militia comes out, um, it, it's really too late, although I guess we have no idea how much worse it could have gotten for that night. Um, there were some Protestants killed as well. You know, the numbers at, at the end of this are going to be about even perhaps a few more Catholics than Protestants. The property damage, however, is almost exclusively on the Catholic side. And the day after that burning of St. Michael's um, was actually the worst of all, because that's when the crowd amassed yet again and returned to what was closer to Independence Hall and the center of the city and burned St. Augustine, which was the largest Catholic church, the largest church of any kind in the city. And they burned that along with its rectory and convent and the largest library in the city at the time as well. Um, so that in terms of property damage, that day, day three of the actual rioting was the worst. At the end of it, 24, 25 people are killed, quarter of a million dollars of property damage. It was an absolute, absolute disaster. So many people were, on both sides, on both Catholic and Protestant sides, were just absolutely devastated that something like this could happen in, in their city. And, you know, there were, there are some great stories about the encounters between Protestants and Catholics during the riots also. You know, a lot of Protestants who were, who, who were just absolutely horrified by this violence, volunteered to guard Catholic churches and to protect them from their more uh, aggressive and violent co-religionists who were threatening every Catholic church. And so there's some really nice stories about, you know, at St. John the Evangelist, especially where, um, where, where one of the men who was guarding it wrote, the Catholic priests left us behind some nice meats and some whiskeys. And, you know, we, we were really appreciative and we're just happy to have been able to be here and to protect this beautiful edifice, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, in the midst of all this horror and violence and, and loss of life, there were some, there were some nice stories as well, but, um, but it was, it was, a, it was a very terrible week in Philadelphia history and it didn't end in May. Unfortunately, um, in July, Catholics suspected that in the lead up to the July 4th celebration, which have always been big in Philly, not just today, and they are big in Philly today, but they had always been, they had always been big and vociferous and Catholics 
I guess rightly suspected that they were going to be even bigger and more anti-Catholic in 1844. And so they asked if it would be okay if they could stockpile weapons, and they were given the okay by the mayor. But some Protestants somehow saw them, at least as is reported, some Protestants saw them stockpiling these weapons at St. Philip de Neri in Southwark. Um, and one thing led to another. They were already watching them and suspicious of what was going on there in you know, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And then the July 4th parades themselves were, they just, they sound, they sound absolutely wild. The floats and the depictions and the symbols that were used. And, you know, so you have things like the an eagle sitting on the shoulder of Lady Liberty who is reading a King James Bible and saying, you know, an open Bible is American and things like this, just float after float of, of this kind of symbols and imagery. And, you know, the reports put almost 100,000 people in Philly for this parade. Um, many of them would have been citizens, of course, many of them marching in it, but that's a pretty large crowd for 1844. So there were a lot of people on hand. There were a lot of emotions um, that were being played to and, and played up. And so then later in the day on the 4th and 5th, yet another round of rioting explodes. It lasted for significantly less. I don't even think it was 48 hours. Um, so it was nothing like the May riots in terms of, in terms of violence, in terms of, loss of life in terms of destruction or time, but it was significant again, and 14 more people were killed. Um, no churches were burned down, but St. Philip de Neri was, uh, one wall was, was, was knocked over. Um, it was a very, very sad summer in Philly, 1844. Well, yes, indeed, this is. Like you said, this was a shocking event then. It was a, it's a shocking event now. Yeah. What do you think were the long-term impact of the riots then? Yeah, it depends. You know, there, there's a number of them. There's some structural ones that um, I think are, are pretty profound. You know, one of them is was the consolidation of the city. Kensington and Southwark both had been outlying municipalities with their own civil services. So one of the complications of the riot and one of the ways that they were able to get out of hand so quickly or not be controlled, you know, I'm, I'm not sure which is a better way to think about that, but was because municipalities had separate police forces and fire brigades. And so there was no one person kind of at centrally commanding what was happening and trying to take control of the riots. So the city was consolidated in 1854. Um, it wasn't directly a result of the riots because there were a lot of other riots in Philly in the 30s and 40s that gave people pause, you know, and made them say, we really need to consolidate here because otherwise people can just, you know, r cross one street and then none of the civil services can touch them. But there were a lot of other reasons for that, too, that it got caught up in um, a lot of politics and economics and class warfare, you know, the, the elite in Center City not wanting to have to pay for services for the rabble in Southwark and that kind of thing. So it wasn't directly, it, it wasn't only because of the riots, but the riots did have something to do with it because they were the biggest of all of the other riots. But the parochial school system and the network of institutions that the Catholic Church built in the aftermath of them was certainly another huge result. You know, the Catholic hierarchy saying to themselves, well, we need to build a sort of parallel world, it seems, because it doesn't really look like we're going to be okay on our own in this, in these public institutions. Um, certainly not all Catholics agreed with this. You know, a lot of them thought, well, we should stay in the public institutions and we should fight to be whatever we want to be in them and for our religious liberty inside of them. You know, others thought, well, let's just stay in them, but why bother fighting? Let's just go along with whatever is considered American. But the hierarchy and and many, many Catholics believed that they did need these separate institutions so their children could be safe in school and so that their children could be taught from 
the um, the kinds of books that would be free of the anti-Catholic stuff that had been in the common schools and continued to be in the common schools, as well as, you know, saying, saying Protestant hymns and all of that. So wasn't exactly sure how religion and Bible reading, Bible usage was going to play itself out necessarily, but the idea that separate institutions were necessary for Catholics was an immediate impact. I think a lot of a lot of Protestants and Catholics looked around them and said, wow, we, we have to figure out a way to be a bit truer to this holy experiment and the idea of religious tolerance and living together because, you know, this is not a question that's going to go away and we need to figure out how to solve it differently because we live, our houses are connected to each other's literally, you know, there is no, there is no way around mixing in the public square. And so you can't, you can't, you just can't have this. And so there was a lot of, I don't know what you might think of as soul searching or something as to how to, how to be a better city and how to be better citizens to each other, better neighbors. Um, you know, for some folks that was in explicitly religious terms, how to be better Christians to one another. Um, for some, it was, you know, how to, how to kind of segregate in, in many respects from one another. So a lot of the, a lot of the things that, that came after the riots were, some of them were, were easily solvable immediately. And some of them, I think we're still wrestling with in Philly. Well, I wonder then, um, I, and this is, gives our listeners a, a a nice kind of uh, introduction to your book uh, for our listeners. There are uh, uh, Katie looks at three different uh, kind of incidences of, of nativism. And this just being one of them. So I hope you'll get the book and, and have a look at the other um, instances, the burning of the Charleston covenant and destruction of the Pope's stone. Uh, but one other great thing about this book and that makes it especially useful if you, if you would like to use it in your, an introductory or a, a, a class that you're teaching is it has a lot of really fascinating documents that Katie has put together. So Katie, I wonder if you could, you could tell us about one or two or even three of, of your favorite documents that you think people might, might really get a lot out of. Yeah, that was, as I think I said earlier, that was one of the funnest part. Um, because, you know, I had all these things that I had uncovered in the course of writing the dissertation that it just, you know, it seems such a shame to not be able to do anything with. So one of the ones that, I think is really helps to see, and perhaps this is an unfortunate thing to see, but it gives you a really good understanding of what religious nativism is like in the constitution of the American Protestant Association, which is, as I mentioned before, that the group was founded in 1842 by 140 Protestant ministers who were in the city of Philadelphia working at the time. And, so, although in many ways it's, I think, would be really difficult for those who are a part of the denomination today to hear, you know, wow, our leading Philadelphia minister of the times signed off on this and was a part of this, um, because it's really, it's filled with a lot of what we might call hate speech today. Um, but it's also really eye-opening. And, and is helpful for those who are unfamiliar with how high the stakes a lot of Protestants believed this was, and especially Protestant ministers who are, in addition to interpreting so much typologically, a lot of them are also interpreting things from a kind of millennial perspective, or at the very least that if we don't get this right, this American experiment, this Philadelphia experiment, God's going to be really angry. And so we need to protect America from the Pope. We need to protect Philadelphia from his followers or God's going to be really angry. And we are doing his work and protecting this place from people who will destroy it from within. And I think you get a really good sense of that from their constitution and from, from reading what they thought. And a number of the guys on the board of the American Protestant Association. So they're not just ministers, but they're also on the board of the Native American Party and other nativist parties. So you can also see 
from them, just from their very names, how you have both Protestant ministers active in political nativist parties as well as in religious nativist organizations. So it can be painful in some ways, I think, because there's a lot, there's a lot of, as I said, anger and hate that is in this document. But I think it's a really good thing to give you a sense of what was going on at the time. And the other document that I really love is um, Bishop Kendrick's letter to the school board, because it, I mean, it sounds like it was written yesterday by someone who it, it could be, again, about public schools, you know, and it could be, I don't want my child to have to be bullied simply because of either their religious beliefs or because of someone else's religious belief. I don't want my gay son or daughter subjected to evangelical anti-homosexuality and taking that out on my child in school. And that's a violation of my child's rights and privileges and of his or her religious liberties. And so you, I think in reading that, you see just how lively this conversation and these debates are about religion in public institutions and especially in schools because, you know, that's where, that's where parents are wanting their, they at least don't want things that go against their beliefs passed on to their children and they want their children to be safe. And I think you, you really get that direct link between 1844 and today or 1842, I should say when it was written and today in that document, as well as, again, this sort of confluence of Catholics' freedom to worship and, and freedom of conscience in the American context. And, you know, Kenrick says things like, isn't that what William Penn wanted? And so drawing on, you know, Kenrick drawing on the very history of Pennsylvania that, that nativists were also tapping into to make their arguments and saying, you know, you're doing exactly what the founders of this country didn't want. And then also making um, making his particular religious arguments as a part of that. So it's just, um, they're both very, very powerful documents. I think the most powerful of the ones I've included. No, those were, um, were fascinating, especially, like you said, it, it just, it's, <laughs> some things change and some things stay the same with the, the bishop's letter. And, and the other, um, the Constitution was interesting because some of it's very dry. It's just, this is how vice presidents are elected mm-hmm. and this is the number of people. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, we have to defend the United States against Romanism. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah. It's a contrast. Yeah, but, you know, then there's also all that boring, tedious stuff that organizations have to, have to get down, you know, the... Um, what what day of the week do we vote on and <laughs> how do you get to be president? Do you have to go up through the ranks, you know, that boring tedium of organizational development as well as the ideological aspects of it? Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but if you'll you'll allow me, I'd like to, to um, I'd want to thank you. And, and but then I'd ask you also to allow me to take a little bit more of your time by asking the traditional question. What are you working on now? Well, I am just in the final weeks of preparing a film called Urban Trinity, the story of Catholic Philadelphia that's being produced with History Making Productions, which is a a production company here in Philadelphia that is much more widely known for its 14th part series called Philadelphia, the Great Experiment, for which it has, we have, I shouldn't say it, for which we have now won, um, eight Emmys. It might be nine. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I shouldn't, I shouldn't necessarily say thank you because I have not had a lot to do directly with them. Although I have been interviewed and have been, you know, a part of the production company, but they're just a tremendously talented group of people. And they, um, so it was started by Sam Katz, who's been a mayoral candidate and remains a civic leader in Philadelphia the production company was founded by him five or six years ago, and he's just brought together some of the most creative and talented people in the city. And so I got to know Sam from just doing roundtable conversations. One of the most immediately impressive things for me about him and the company was that they started by going out to scholars and Philadelphians and just holding town hall meetings and roundtable conversations and saying, 
Tell us what you want to know about your history and tell us what you think is important. And one of the roundtables was all religious historians, which, so I'm absolutely thrilled by this, right? Because, you know, we religious historians, we know that it's often a battle for us for folks to pay attention to the importance of religion as part of the historical record and for everything that's gone on in history. And so I was just absolutely thrilled about that. And so worked on the great experiment a little bit. And then Sam got the idea two and a half years ago now to do a spinoff series on the religious history of Philadelphia and asked me if I thought that sounded interesting. And I, you know, the yes couldn't get out of my mouth more quickly. I was just absolutely floored. And he said, all right, do you want to co-produce it with me? And I said, absolutely. So we decided to start with the Catholic story, which is, um, you know, there are a number of reasons for it, but uh, I guess the, it, an audience reason, an impact reason, it was before we knew about the world meeting of families and before we knew about Pope Francis certainly coming to Philly. But then when we found out, we said, oh boy, we really need to be finished for this. And so we, we kind of amped up the speed. And then the Pope Francis piece has just, has the city in, in I, I don't even know what, some people, are, some people are saying, I'm getting out of here, I want nothing to do with that week. And, you know, every day it's just dispatches from the mayor about traffic and what, what streets are going to be closed and bridges closed and for how long. And there's all of that sort of civic mania and everyday person, how am I going to get to work kind of stuff. But the level of excitement to be hosting to be hosting a pope, but to be hosting this pope is something I have never witnessed before in Philadelphia. It's just, it's, it's so tremendous. And for us to be able to be a part of it is um, something I never could have imagined in my wildest dreams. So we're premiering on ABC on Tuesday, September 22nd, and that'll be episodes one and two. The entire film is three episodes, but we're going to also screen them together at the Kimmel Center, which is where it's the home of the Philadelphia Orchestra on Broad Street. So it's a very large civic space on Broad Street. And we're going to be premiering the entirety of it there on Wednesday night, September 23rd. And shortly thereafter, we're not exactly sure how soon thereafter, because we might be entering some film festivals. And if you enter film festivals, you can't just screen live for free on your website. But what we do with The Great Experiment, which anyone is free to go to if they're interested. It's at historyofphilly.com. And so the nine episodes that we have already done are there and streaming live. They're 25 minute long, minutes in length. And there's also all sorts of primary sources and secondary sources to use in the classroom. And it's just a tremendous resource. And Urban Trinity, which is at urbantrinityfilm.com, is going to follow that same model. So eventually, all three episodes will stream there um, for free. And immediately, there will be different educational resources and suggestions and then shorter things called webisodes that will be... Um, webisodes are five to seven minute short films on usually one event or um, one theme that we didn't get to really flesh out in full detail having 350 years to cover in 70 minutes <laughs> means that there's a lot of things we didn't get to cover in great detail. So there's also some shortcuts, as we call them, that are interviews with scholars. And then there's these webisodes that revolve around other events or, or moments or, um, or themes in Philadelphia Catholic history that are also going to be on the website. So I encourage anyone who is interested to have a look at that. It's just been such an incredible opportunity for me and to work with the people at History Making Productions, especially Nathaniel Popkin, who is an incredible Philadelphia writer and who has, has published three books on his own about Philadelphia history. And, and Andrew Ferret, who is the director of the series, who is the one who takes what is on the piece of paper and brings it to life and to watch him work and to watch him and Nathaniel both together work and to be a part of their process has just been absolutely incredible for me. So I would, I would encourage any listeners who, 
who have any um, any interest in this to to go there and just to to check out this tremendous bit of work. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it, and I especially like you mentioned the five to seven minute clips because those are perfect for classroom viewing. Oh yes, they are. I use ones <laughs> from The Great Experiment all the time. There's there's a um, Richard Allen clip. There's a Philadelphia City of Churches clip that are already a part of the main series. So there's you know there's religion in through the entirety of it, not not just it's not just waiting for the religion series, but but yeah, there's some amazing webisodes in there as well as the main series. So I I cannot say enough about it. It's a tremendous resource. Well, thank you, Katie, so much for telling us about both your book and about these uh, these wonderful upcoming documentaries and, and what's already out there for our um, listeners to use. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners for listening. <laughs> thank you again and have a great day. Okay, bye. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University. I want to thank you for listening to this interview. And I hope you'll come back and listen to another one again soon.